0: Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff.
2: This is a CBC Podcast. That must be you. Hey, Frank. How are you doing, Chris? I'm good. How are
3: you? Great to meet you. Nice to meet you. You, uh, you look like you've been working out in the sun, huh? I have been.
2: That voice you hear is you? Frank Morton. He's a farmer in Oregon's Willamette Valley.
3: These were planted a few weeks ago for...
2: Frank is tanned and fit with a corona of salt and pepper hair. He's wearing a T-shirt that says, Seed Farm Table. And his hat is stained around its band with a day's worth of sweat.
3: Oh, look at that. So this is lettuce. (laughs) This is probably the only lettuce you're going to see today that you recognize as lettuce.
2: Frank is a lettuce grower and breeder, a pretty famous one in the world of specialty greens. He's a pioneer in the high stakes, big money business of shipping packaged lettuce. Though most people these days take bagged salad greens totally for granted as just this edible commodity that magically turns up on the shelves at Safeway or Loblaws, when Frank was starting out, bagged lettuce was still considered a produce farming holy grail.
3: I actually got into this looking for a farm that had a new idea. This was 1981. And I came to this farm in north of Seattle called Pragtree Farm. It was operated by a guy named Mark
2: Music. Mark Music's another lettuce pioneer.
3: He showed me around his farm a little bit, and right away, it was clear that this was not a normal farm at all. He was selling mostly wild greens, cattails, uh, lamb's quarter, dandelions, sheep sorrel, all that kind of stuff. The most important thing he taught me was how to get it from his farm to Seattle. He put it in a paper bag, put that inside a plastic bag and sealed it up and put that in his walk-in cooler. And the next day the UPS driver, the parcel delivery service, would come along and pick that up and would take it to a Seattle restaurant. That was the most important piece of information of all.
2: Before long, Frank was working his own farm. And I don't want to minimize the novelty of what he was growing. This was the early 1980s. The word salad in those days still meant iceberg lettuce or less often romaine or maybe if you were really fancy and it was in season, ahead of Boston bib. Frank Morton was mixing way more interesting greens than that. So there would be... A
3: layer of one kind of lettuce and then a cress and then arugula and then a different lettuce and then some chicory and then some endive and then some parsley and then some parsley buds and then some, you know, just went on and on in layers in the bag. Maybe 40 different edible things that could be eaten as salad.
2: But at least in retrospect, what really makes Frank's operation stand out is how he moved it all. Frank Morton took the process he'd witnessed at Mark Music's farm and made it transcontinental. He sold his lettuces to restaurants that were thousands of miles away.
3: I was sending salad greens by UPS to restaurants in Boston, New York City, and Washington, D.C. We would figure out what the best way to get it was, the cheapest way. We sent it using the U.S. Postal Service, for years to the Fountain restaurant at the Four Seasons Hotel in Philadelphia.
2: In New York, his biggest account was a place called the Quilted Giraffe, where you'd see people like Jackie Kennedy and Wall Street junk bond kings at dinner a lot of nights. In Boston, they shipped to Les Balliers, one of the most influential restaurants in town.
3: One of the restaurants I was working with in New York City, the guy called me up one day and he said, you know what you really should be doing is patenting your packaging system. He said, that's what you should do. You would make a lot of money doing that. Of course, I didn't have the first idea about how I would go about doing that.
2: From CBC, this is The Fridge Light, the hidden stories behind the food you eat. I'm Chris Nottle-Smith. And that long-haul, high-end salad business that Frank Morton built in the 1980s, it wasn't just some brief historical oddity. Lettuce farmers have spent the last hundred years obsessing over how to ship their life's work over enormous distances. These living, breathing, incredibly perishable leaves— Thanks to the lessons they've learned, lettuce is the linchpin of North America's produce economy. In a lot of ways, lettuce is the reason we eat the way we do. Because of lettuce, you can get things like fresh, ripe figs from Greece at your corner produce store in Montreal, and strawberries in the middle of February. And because of lettuce, the counter-cultural hippie curiosity called organic farming grew into the $40 billion business it is today. In this episode, green gold. How this overlooked, everyday, totally underappreciated rabbit food in all our produce stores helped transform North America. And with it, the way we eat.
1: Lately, I've been reading up all I can about refrigeration. And I can't get it out of my head that you can keep anything good as long as you can get it cold
4: enough.
2: In 1952, John Steinbeck published East of Eden, an epic novel set in California's Salinas Valley. Steinbeck had grown up in the valley. He'd watched as lettuce farms took over almost every available patch of dirt. East of Eden was made into a movie starring James Dean and Julie Harris. Dad wrapped
1: a head of lettuce in a piece of wax paper and kept it in our icebox for over three weeks, and it still came out fresh and good. Isn't that right, Dad? Quite right, son.
2: One of the key plot points is a quest to ship lettuce by rail from the Salinas Valley to Chicago. And that part of the story is closer to fact than fiction. The Salinas Valley had everything going for it. The weather was moist and mild year-round, and the soil was fertile. Even today, it's still called the salad bowl of the world. And what happens there resounds in produce aisles across the continent. When California flooded in the spring, lettuce prices as far away as, well, Toronto spiked by 60%. But almost as important as the area's fertility was that in the early 1900s, the Salinas Valley had rail lines running through it. Rail lines that could connect the valley's incredible abundance with hungry consumers to the east. The challenge was keeping all that lettuce from rotting before it got there. And early attempts were disastrous. If you can picture what lettuce looks like when it's moldered in your fridge for a few weeks, now imagine entire boxcars like that, of green, oozy sludge. That smell, that sight, were a common occurrence for more than a decade of experimenting. And as in East of Eden, the losses drove some lettuce farmers to ruin. But by the 1920s, Produce packers in the valley had learned how to get trainloads of lettuce from central California all the way to Chicago and New York. And the key, the thing that allowed them to finally do it, was a little-known variety that came to be called iceberg.
0: The reason it's called iceberg lettuce is that it can actually be packed in ice and can maintain a temperature at 32 degrees
2: This is Gabriella Petrick, a historian at the University of New Haven, who studied the rise of the industry.
0: It also has a fairly long shelf life of about 21 to 26 days. And you need 14 of those days to get to Chicago at the time.
2: The Salinas Valley had another advantage, apart from just climate and soil and rail lines. It had a serious electric power grid also. Enough of a grid to support a sudden boom in ice-making plants.
0: These people are making 30,000 pounds of ice a day. When you're shipping iceberg lettuce, it's not just about the ice in the crate. What they learned by the 1930s, literally shave the ice and they'll blow it in on top. So a quarter of the rail car that goes from Salinas, California to Chicago or New York City is simply ice and water.
2: By the Depression years, lettuce growers shipped 30,000 carloads annually, each one of them literally heaving with ice. And that single variety of lettuce, iceberg, became North America's first truly seasonless fresh vegetable. If you think about it by modern standards, maybe this doesn't sound like such a big deal, but in the 1920s, before most people even had home refrigeration, it was enormous. Iceberg lettuce was the very first fresh produce, You could buy and eat literally any week or month of the year.
0: The reason Iceberg took off is because people were really bored with the root vegetables. And let's face it, you know, cabbage has a particularly strong flavor to it and has a particularly strong odor to it. And it's not that people didn't like it, but having something like a fresh, sweet head of lettuce in the middle of January at a reasonable price. I mean, the other thing that, you know, I think... the um, the growers and shippers might not get enough credit for is actually really expanding the palate of Americans or giving Americans some choice in what they get to eat. Carrots, potatoes, cabbage are really, really boring. Um, and, And to finally have the opportunity for something that actually tastes much more fresh.
2: By the mid to late 1920s, at least for the people who could afford it, every day was a salad day. You can see it in the cookbooks of the time. In 1926, this unbelievably prim, aspirational, high-society compendium of salads came out. It was called the Edgewater Beach Hotel Salad Book.
1: Briasse Savarin said, A dinner without cheese is like a pretty woman with one eye. He might have added, At a dinner without a salad is like a pretty woman with both eyes missing, for one is blind indeed who omits salad from the dinner.
2: The book was hugely popular, stayed in print for more than three decades, and the recipes that ran through its 300 pages were definitely of a time. Common ingredients in those salads included cream, cheese, pineapple, beef tongue, and my personal favorite, maraschino cherries. The recipes called for a bunch of different kinds of greens, too. A surprising number, from endive, chicory, and dandelion to romaine lettuce. But the most common type was iceberg. Not that the Edgewater Beach Hotel Salad Books recipes called it that. They referred to iceberg lettuce just as lettuce. As iceberg's fortunes grew, so did the fortunes of the people who controlled the market. Lettuce quickly became a source of enormous and concentrated wealth. Shipping lettuce from California to Michigan or Moncton wasn't the same as driving a produce truck to the local market. You needed money to build ice plants and packing houses, to negotiate with the rail companies. That reality totally changed the structure of local produce farming. Before long, a handful of major grower packers, with names like Bruce Church and Bud Antle, dominated the industry. Gabriella Petrick calls them the lettuce barons.
0: Yeah, we have this uh, illusion that the depression, everybody was wiped out and you've got these poor farmers everywhere. This was not the case in the Salinas Valley. Those guys got really rich really fast because of the way that they structured the business dynamic of it. You know, owning the land, but also owning the ice plant or the packing plant or the trucks that you use to transport the lettuce from one place to another or the tractors. Those all become really important to actually the financial success of, you know, the small handful of guys that sort of pioneered it. So if you're a smaller farmer who wanted to grow lettuce, you could certainly do that. But you had to contract with one of the packers who then packed it and shipped it off
2: for you. By the 1950s, iceberg was the most frequently consumed vegetable in America. And by the dawn of the 1960s, an average American ate more than 20 pounds of the stuff every year. And those lettuce barons, Bruce Church and Bud Antle and their contemporaries, kept working to make their product longer-lasting, even more shippable. One technology they perfected, called vacuum cooling, could flash-chill whole lettuce heads from the inside out. Iceberg became so transportable, that the U.S. military even shipped it to American GIs fighting in Vietnam. But Iceberg also suffered from some persistent issues. First off, well, it was Iceberg, watery and flavorless. From a nutrition standpoint, you might as well have been eating plastic bags. And like all the other lettuces at the time, your only option was to buy the entire head.
5: We would go into a grocery store and uh, ask customers if they were going to eat the
2: whole head of lettuce they bought. This is Jim Lug, a soil scientist, who in the mid-1960s became one of the most important players the lettuce industry has ever seen.
5: A lot of times we'd see him buy a head of romaine and a head of iceberg, and they'd say, well, no, we like the dark green color of the romaine and the texture of the iceberg. So then we'd say, well, are you going to ultimately eat all the lettuce? Oh, probably not. We'll probably have to throw half of it away. So that kind of led us down the path of figuring out how to cut the lettuce and uh, package it with blends.
2: Packaged lettuce. Almost 20 years before Frank Morton started bagging and shipping his washed mixed greens across the continent, those lettuce barons in the Salinas Valley were trying to figure out how they could do it on a massive scale. And Jim Lugg, along with the team he led, became the key. Jim had been working as the head of research for the Bruce Church Company when, in 1966, He was put in charge of a new joint venture. That venture was a partnership between Bruce Church and the Whirlpool Corporation, the same company that makes dishwashers and clothes dryers. The reason? Whirlpool had this technology that could revolutionize the lettuce business, if only they could get it right. What is it about lettuce that makes it so fragile?
5: Well, for one thing, it's 95% water. makes it very temperamental and easily damaged. The other thing that happens with any increase in temperature causes the lettuce to breathe faster, and that causes the decay to happen more quickly.
2: Fresh fruits and vegetables, even after they've been cut or picked, they continue to take in oxygen and to spit out carbon dioxide and water. If you choke off the oxygen altogether, well, then they ferment. And if you just let them bathe in the carbon dioxide and water they produce, that's how you get green, gooey lettuce sludge. What Whirlpool's breakthrough technology did was it lowered the temperature and it also tweaked oxygen and carbon dioxide levels in just about any space you hooked it up to. So you could create this carefully controlled atmosphere. And essentially, that atmosphere slowed down lettuce's breathing just enough to keep it fresh.
5: Iceberg was kind of like shoe leather. If you kept the temperature right, we did ship it for 30 days all over the world in these refrigerated sea vans. But the romaine and tender leaves or butter lettuce, those are much more delicate (laughs) and they don't keep as well.
2: Jim Lug's job was to find a way to create that same sort of controlled atmosphere, not in some giant shipping container or in a refrigerated van, but in individual lettuce bags. If you could do that, then you could ship more than just iceberg. You could ship any kind of lettuce. And theoretically, at least, it could last in that bag for weeks. So what we did was we worked with the polymer chemists Those are plastics experts.
5: And figured out how to get films that were differentially permeable. Differentially permeable means that they have one permeability for oxygen and another permeability for carbon dioxide. So we let oxygen in to keep the product alive and carbon dioxide could go get out through the package so it didn't get too high and cause an off flavor.
2: For a salad bag to work, it had to be this incredibly complex piece of engineering.
5: There's always layers in that package, which you can't see because the layers are so thin. Layer 1 and 5 are seal layers. (laughs) Layer 2 could be an oxygen transmission layer. (sighs) Layer 3 could be great for printing, so the optics are beautiful, so you can't resist buying that package of lettuce. Mm. And layer
2: 4 could be for carbon dioxide management. And every different type of lettuce or salad blend breathed at a different rate. So each type of lettuce required its own degree of differential permeability. Each one of those bags had to be a mini biosphere. And there was another issue. Jim Lug and his team had plenty of competition. Dole, for one, the fruit business behemoth, was working on its own bagged salad project. And another company, a tiny organics outfit called Earthbound Farm, was also on the case. What everybody in the business knew was that mixed, washed, packaged lettuce could be a gold mine. While entire heads of iceberg and romaine still went for 50 or 60 cents, specialty lettuce farmers like Frank Morton could command almost any price.
0: Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff.
6: I think it had a lot to do with the food revolutions that occurred in the 1970s and 1980s.
2: This is Julie Gutman, a geographer from the University of California, Santa Cruz, who studied the rise of big organic.
6: The real switch happens in the 1980s. And I attribute it a lot to these kind of maverick restaurateurs who took a palette from Europe And brought it to the States. You know, I'm most pointedly thinking of Alice Waters.
2: Alice Waters is the chef who opened Chez Panisse, a famous restaurant in Berkeley. She's kind of the fairy godmother of the modern, fresh, local, and organic movement.
6: Absolutely. And Alice, so the legend goes, went to France for maybe a year and spent some time eating fresh forage food and was so impressed with the kind of freshness and seasonality of the ingredients. And she was enthralled with the mesclun mix. And so she would source directly from her farmers and started featuring mesclun salads at the restaurant at Chez Panisse. And so a few other chefs caught on to this. You started seeing organic mesclun featured on restaurant menus, particularly high-end restaurant menus.
2: I mean, just imagining that today, I think we look at mesclun as such a commodity. It's like, oh, it's another spring mix. At the time, it was a really big deal, wasn't it?
6: It was a huge deal. It was very rare.
2: Even in 1980s money, organic mixed baby greens, mesclun, spring mix, whatever you call it, this stuff you can get today for like $3.99 for a big bag at your local supermarket... It sold for $14 a pound. But growing, harvesting, bagging the stuff, it wasn't like growing carrots or organic cabbage. Mesclin mix was a lot like iceberg had been in the 1920s. Getting it to market took incredible amounts of cash. And so the world of organics adapted. Exhibit A, the tiny two-and-a-half-acre operation called Earthbound Farm. Earthbound didn't even exist until the early 1980s, but the couple who owned it, Drew and Myra Goodman, they were all ambition and smarts. They partnered up with a few of those Salinas Valley lettuce parents and bet big on packaged organic spring mix. And those two and a half acres well, thanks to organic baby lettuce, they grew.
6: I think it was one of the first commodities to kind of reposition organics as something that was appealing to upscale folks rather than to countercultural hippies. And so it was one of the first to get some real traction in retail establishments other than health food stores. Since then, the array of produce... And products that are available organically has expanded so you can get almost any food item produced organically. I think it was kind of the leader, as it were, of this transition from the hippie food to what we call yuppie chow.
2: The organic movement would never be the same. But the biggest breakthrough finally happened at the end of the 1980s. In 1989, Jim Lugg and his team launched bagged lettuce across the US. It was a mix of shredded cabbage, carrots, and, yep, iceberg. But it was an instant hit. Before long, people who'd only ever tasted iceberg and romaine were eating arugula, baby kale, mizuna, and baby spinach. And not at fancy restaurants, but for Tuesday night dinner. And a lot of the technologies that were developed to ship lettuce spread throughout the produce industry. That controlled atmosphere system that Jim Lugg and Whirlpool worked on mm. is used today around the world for fresh tender fruits like blueberries and strawberries. And all that progress has dramatically changed what we see in the produce aisles. Here's Jim Lugg. Uh, when you walk into a, a produce store today or a grocery store today and you see the display of lettuces, what goes through your mind?
5: <laughs> I smile. <laughs> In my store, where, nearby where I live, it's a uh, Lucky store, and it's probably 20 feet of that display case with packaged salads. And when I think back to uh, 1989, there was none so it's the velocity of adoption has been great.
2: As for iceberg lettuce, today we eat less than half as much as we did in 1989. But it's safe to say, even amid all that newfound variety, even though we maybe had a brief infatuation period with arugula and bagged mesclun mix, lettuce still doesn't get much love. It could just be that, by now, we think we know it too well.
4: It's sort of one of the workhorses of the kitchen that nobody talks about.
2: This is Amanda Cohen, she's a chef from Toronto who runs Dirt Candy, a celebrated vegetable focused restaurant
4: in Manhattan. When it's sitting in your fridge and you're just sort of looking around, you're like, ah, look at that. If I take this lettuce and this tomato and this, you know, half rotten onion, I have a salad. It's all there. It is working so hard for you at all times, plus it's delicious and there's so many different kinds. People don't talk about how many different kinds there are.
2: How many kinds do you use?
4: In the restaurant, Whew. right now we're probably at like 10. Can
2: you Tell me what you do with them.
4: Uh, we have arugula on our fennel dish. We have and I romaine. Jam.
2: You're squinching your eyes closed really tight trying to think about it. Keep going.
4: I know, I'm trying to remember. Uh, watercress.
2: Amanda uses Boston lettuce to wrap dirt candies, seared Brussels sprouts, tacos, and iceberg in their carrot sliders.
4: And coming in the next week and a half, we're actually going to have a lettuce soup. I'm sorry, what? (laughs) Lettuce soup. Why does lettuce only have to be for a salad? Why can't we sort of switch how we're thinking about it and, you know, use it as people would use other vegetables? Most vegetables always get incorporated into a soup somehow, so why not a lettuce soup?
2: Amanda is actually using that lettuce soup as one of the centerpieces for the restaurant's new tasting menu. How does it taste? What do you do?
4: We make a really light, bright stock uh, with onions and garlic, cilantro, some coconut. Coconut uh, is a really good ingredient for giving uh, body to soups, a little bit of peanuts. And then we bring that to a boil, strain it off, and then add the lettuce actually, and let the lettuce just, just cook for like a minute or two until it softens and blend the whole thing up.
2: What is it? Does it It, it tastes lettuce-y, I'm, i I'm imagining? Yeah,
4: it tastes like just... Bright, hot lettuce, which probably doesn't sound that delicious, but it actually is. It brings out this totally different quality that you would get in a salad, where I think in a salad, mostly what you taste is the texture of it. And here, you really get to taste the flavor of it. And one of my pet peeves in most salads is that people way overdress them, and you're never allowed to actually taste the lettuce.
2: So maybe the problem with lettuce is we don't do enough cool things with it the way Amanda Cohen does. But another thing is, most of us are eating pretty well, boring lettuce varieties. A lot of them are bred and grown for ease of shipping and longevity instead of taste. Another chef I know, Rob Gentile of Toronto's Buca restaurants, that's never been a problem for him.
1: Lettuce in the Italian world of food and cuisine is, is very, very important. Italian lettuces and Italian salads are always very intense in flavor.
2: Rob's family loves lettuces and greens enough that when they first moved to Canada in the 1960s, they used to grow out their lawn every spring so they could pick and eat the dandelion leaves. The menus at his restaurants are loaded with odd bitter or herbal and even grassy tasting varieties that look nothing like what you can buy in your average produce store like this one lettuce called Minutina that he has grown specially for his restaurants. This is so cool looking. It looks like a weed. It looks like something from my lawn. He brought the seeds back in his suitcase after a trip to Italy.
1: It looks like grass, but it has a whole bunch of little offshoots of spiny points coming off the side of the blade, I guess you can call it. And it grows, uh, they'll cut it for me at about between four and six inches long. And uh, we use it as garnish and and it adds a really nice green bitterness to a lot of
2: different dishes. Rob, this is incredible. Like, it's... it's. I don't know how to describe it. It's like, it it just sets your whole mouth. Like, it's bitterness, but it's way more interesting than that.
1: You can't get it in Canada. You might as well just try and grow it, right?
2: Another lettuce he goes nuts for, it's a thing that most North Americans wouldn't even recognize because this lettuce is as much about its stems as its leaves.
1: I love Puntarelle. It is a varietal of chicory that grows a heart in the middle of it. That's very much like a fennel bulb. And if you ever have a chance to, you know, Google punterelle and, and take a look at the photos of it, it's, it's stunningly beautiful.
2: Look it up. It's pretty sweet.
1: So there's all these wonderful, you know, stalks that grow individually, but are all attached to a bulb at the bottom. Uh, and you cut them all off and you cut them and you let them separate. And you take each one of those and you run a knife vertically along them so you can cut those spears into, into strips. And Italians take all those strips of punterelli that have been shaved and they throw it into ice water. And it curls up. And then they, they spin it, they get all the water off of it, and they serve it with an anchovy dressing. So the brown anchovies, olive oil, vinegar, salt, that's it. That's it. It's the lettuce with its yeah. own way of serving it. That's yeah. how you have it. And lemon. And that's how Romans eat it. And it is amazing. Amazing, yeah.
2: The thing you realize when you talk to somebody like Rob, there's no one definition of what lettuce, what salad greens, should look and taste like. They can be sweet and bland like iceberg, or totally green tasting, or bracingly bitter like dandelion. In China, leaf lettuce isn't even really a thing. Farmers there mostly grow a type of lettuce called celtus that's known for thick, long stems. People cut and stir fry them. In Egypt, lettuce is valued for the oil that people press from its seeds. And yet, here in North America, even with the advent of bagged salads and baby organic everything, we've got this super narrow definition of what a lettuce can be, what it should look like, how you can use it, and how it should taste. At least, a lot of us do.
3: So, lettuces A through Z, starting with Aloha Jim. This is a cross between a Hawaiian lettuce called Manoa, and a lettuce that I created called Leopard. You'll see out in the garden, I've got, I don't know, 20 varieties from that same cross. They're all different colors
2: and shapes and sizes. Remember this guy, Frank Morton? Yeah, in the 1980s, he was a boutique, long-haul lettuce kingpin. But today, he's one of North America's most prolific organic lettuce breeders. His company, called Wild Garden Seed, sells organic seeds to growers around the world. So,
3: lettuce comes in different colored seeds. Which one is that? This one's called Emerald Fan. This is Flashy Butter Oak. This one is black. This is uh, Stern. Most of these are my varieties.
2: Frank's catalog is maybe the greatest cure I've seen for anyone who thinks all lettuce is the same. He's got old heirloom varieties from the 1700s and a stem lettuce that's originally from Egypt. He has lettuces shaped like deer tongues or with ruffled and sawtoothed edges. He even has more than 20 different kinds of iceberg. And his romaine selection stretches across five pages in the catalogue. There's everything from sweet, dense, tiny-headed gems that could fit in a teacup to a speckled pink and bronze variety that looks like it comes from a museum of modern art. So how many different varieties of lettuce do you have c for right now? Um... I kind of lose count. (laughs) I think it's uh, 100 lettuces right now. There's actually 114, and more than half of those are varieties that Frank bred himself. One of the varieties he shows me is so dark red under the Willamette Valley sunshine, its color looks almost black. Black lettuce. That particular variety's got a pretty great backstory. So when you breed a plant like this
3: that's that dark red... It may not taste as good as a green one, but it does have more antioxidant activity. There's no doubt about that. In fact, that's why they sent my Outregis lettuce to the International Space Station.
2: Sorry, did you call? I got to follow up on two things there. First of all, what was that name again? <laughs> Outregis.
3: Uh, outrageous was my first super dark red lettuce. I finished it around 1999 or something like that.
2: Yeah, I got that it was red. What was yeah. the
3: second half of that sentence?
2: They did what with it?
3: Um, NASA was trying to figure out what plant, what salad to grow on the International Space Station that would grow quickly, that astronauts would want to eat, and um, that would have antioxidant, Uh, activity, because those guys are getting irradiated all the time. Um, And most important was they wanted a plant that did not have a lot of microbial growth on the leaves, something I never would have thought about. So arugula, kale, they're covered with microbes. The leaves just grow microbes. I don't know why. Most lettuces are covered with microbes, too, but... When they looked at Outregis, they found the least microbial growth on the surface of the leaves. And that's what they wanted. Nobody told me about it. They bought the seed from my customer, Johnny's. (laughs) And I I read about it on the Internet that Outregis was the first lettuce in space. I went, hallelujah!
2: (laughs) Back here on Earth, researchers are working to transform lettuce in lots of other ways. Out in the Salinas Valley, scientists with the USDA are developing new varieties that at least they hope will be able to withstand the drought and heat of global warming. Other breeders have started releasing new super lettuce varieties that are extra rich in vitamins and antioxidants. And maybe someday, thanks to these new super lettuces, we'll even be able to escape that modern produce aisle scourge called kale. But Frank Morton, if you ask him, he's got them all beat.
3: I was out in a lettuce field with a plant breeder from Oregon State University, and he was looking at some of my lettuce grow outs, and he looked down into one of them, and he said, Frank, looks like you've almost reached the Holy Grail in lettuce. And I said, what's that? And he said, a lettuce that's red on the inside. And I said, really? That's the Holy Grail in lettuce? And he explained to me, yeah, haven't you ever noticed when you open up a red lettuce, it's green and yellow inside?
2: Okay, it's true. Frank does have a bit of a thing for red-colored lettuces. But even his reddest ones, like that space-traveling-out-redgest variety, once you break it open, it's actually green inside. He said, And he pointed down at
3: this lettuce that I was working on. He says, that's red down inside. And so that, that was 2005. And the light came on in my head like, oh, yeah, well, that's what I'm working on. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I have to admit, I'm kind of underwhelmed at first when Frank says this. All I can think is, really, man, you're a famous lettuce breeder, and the best you've got is it's red all the way through? What about a whole new type of lettuce that tastes totally different from everything else? What about some new sweet and sour kind? Just as I'm thinking this, Frank stops dead in his tracks, out there in the field, under the sun, And there's this row of the most richly red lettuce plants I've ever seen. He stoops over, starts pulling back a few leaves so he can show me their insides. And the smile on his face is the sort of smile that says just one thing. I told you so. Red to the Heart Romaine was released last spring. It's sweet and juicy and dark red on its outside, as if somebody dipped a regular green romaine lettuce in dye. And when you break one open, the red gets lighter and lighter until, in the very center, it turns this sublime, blushed, almost translucent pink. I can see it as I'm standing there in the dirt, under the sun in Frank's garden. I can see that ruby slipper of a lettuce turning up on fancy restaurant menus in a year or two. Not long after that, maybe it'll appear on a shelf in a refrigerated grocery case in a five-layered bag that's its own little biosphere shipped from a couple thousand miles west. And I don't know, it's only lettuce, right? But I'd buy it without a second thought. This is The Fridge Light. The voices you heard today were Frank Morton, Gabriella Petrick, Jim Lugg, Julie Guthman, and the chefs Amanda Cohen and Rob Gentile. This episode was produced by Allison Broverman, Zoe Tennant, Michelle Macklem, Lisa Godfrey, and Veronica Simmons. We had help from Luisa Cardosa and Cassie Bessler, and special thanks to USDA researcher Bechan Mo. Additional music in this episode was from Paolo Pietropaolo. Our executive producer is Arif Narani. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please write us a review, a good one if you can. To hear more, including podcast extras, visit our website, cbc.ca slash The Fridge You can connect with us on Twitter and share photos with us on Instagram. I'm Chris Nottle smith and always remember, eat your greens. For more CBC Original Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash originalpodcasts.